it's not, you know, you know, that's why Freud discovered uh, the psychoanalytic method of sitting, of having the patient lie on the couch ah, and he sits okay. behind them so, uh, so that their heads are looking that way and he's here because he said, you know, he had, to, he had to face like 6, 8, 10, 12 people a day and he just couldn't take it anymore. Like he, did, he thought better when he was relaxed. So, that, that's, so that's just a long way of saying, why don't we just do audio? <laughs> Absolutely. Welcome to the Buddhist Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Tom. I want to present to you two scenarios. The first is I make this podcast and I tell you about an amazing science of the mind, science of reality that can solve all of your problems, all of society's problems, and all the questions of existence. Now, many people do this when they talk about Buddhism, and I think that's a problem. Buddhism, just like Islam, just like Christianity, is an incredibly rich um, tradition of thought and religion that has some amazing, liberating potentiality, but has some elements currently which subjugate us. And my guest today, Glenn Wallace, He's thought long and hard about what it is in Buddhism that subjugates us and what is um, useful to our liberation. And it's a very long discussion. It's quite in depth, it's quite challenging, but it's just like his book, it's very much worth coming back to, listening to, studying carefully, because if you do so, you'll learn so much. Today, the irony is not lost on me that the guest of this episode of the Buddhist Philosophy Podcast is an advocate both of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism. So we'll find out what both these terms mean later. In a past life, my guest achieved success in both academia and Western Buddhism with a very well-received translation of the Dhammapada and a tenured professorship, among other achievements. But Glenn has chosen a different path, and nowadays he has returned to his punk anti-establishment roots as a director of Insight Seminars and founder of and frequent author on the Speculative Non-Buddhism blog. I've had the pleasure of taking part in multiple Insight Seminars uh, events, and it's clear that, Glenn, both you and your community are thriving. Today, we will discuss a critique of Western Buddhism, Ruins of the Buddhist Real, Glenn's 2018 book, which convincingly critiques Western Buddhism, Buddhism as it appears in the West, and begins an outline of an alternative. So, Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. So, we'll start off... um, you know, if it's all right with you talking a bit about conceptual parapraxis, because I think this is a really powerful um, concept in the book. So what is con- uh, conceptual pra- parapraxis uh, as it appears in Western Buddhism? Well, you're right. That is a really good place to start because one of the central ideas in my critique is that um, Buddhism... Uh, it, conceptual power practice is something that is definitive of what I'm calling ex-Buddhism. It's the practice that almost defines the identity of being an ex-Buddhist theoretician or more passively practitioner. Um, So so it's a good place to start. Um, And I'm, I'm also claiming that this practice of conceptual power practice has the function of uh, turning Buddhism into what could be considered a rigorous form of, of thought uh, into some, something else. And I, I won't, you know, I'll leave it to the, to the listener to decide what that something else might be. Um, but it's already a damning enough claim or 
um, a consequential enough claim to say that this conceptual power practice turns Buddhism into something else other than what it is claiming for itself. So what is it? Um, I mean, the basic idea comes from Freud. He uh, identified something in the Psychopathology of Everyday Life, 1901 book that he called in German, Fehlleistung. It got the unfortunate translation by Strachey, who is the early English translator of Freud. Of, for some reason, Strachey uh, thought it was necessary to take Freud's very earthy, colloquial, everyday speech and give it Latin, weirdo, like technical sounding translations. And he did that with power practice. So Fehlleistung just means something like a, a faulty action or um, you know, an erroneous, yeah, faulty action is good. A failed action, a faulty action. So Freud identified a bunch, bunch of these in psychopathology of everyday life. Uh, we, we misspeak, we mishear, we misremember, um, we misact, uh, you know, you know, and he put this, this prefix in front of it, which translates to something like miss, like a misreading, a mishearing. Um, and what he said about it was it's, it's, it's an error. You have to put like these scare quotes around error because it turns out not to be an error at all. It's something quite different. It's an error in speech, et cetera, um, but it actually reveals certain unconscious motives or wishes, you know, the, the, mis, the misspoken term, the misremembered fact is actually a clue to certain repressed attitudes or thoughts mm -hmm. or, or wishes or impulses, et cetera. And I, I'm claiming that that this happens in Buddhism all the time, this kind of misturning. I give examples. I give two big examples, one with uh, David Loy talking about sort of revolutionary potential, you know, social revolutionary potential of Buddhist ideas uh, around no self, and I give another example from um, Jay Garfield, where he talks about desire. Just to be really, really brief, what I show is that they want the Buddhist term to do a certain kind of work, which they feel is absolutely essential in, in a rigorous form of thought. Like, Loy wants uh, no self to do the kind of work that creates a, a, a certain kind of subject in the world. He's able to act on, you know, oppressive structural systems um, but he can't really abide that because in doing so he 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 is sacrificing something that I call Buddhist sufficiency sacrificing the function of Buddhism as offering the most preeminent you know view on reality or the self that's available um, so he has to perform a kind of turning around and what's interesting in in Loy is he actually says he's doing that. He says there's this really interesting Buddhist term called paravritti, mm. which means a turning around. And he's right. It does mean a turning around, but it also means fleeing. So, so why the reason he, he postulates paravritti, he says, we get to this point to no self where it's this, this, this emptiness. It, it, it's this lack of being. He said, but we can't stop there. So we have to turn around from there. He says, he said, here, I'll, I'll write for you. So we need to turn around, turning around that transforms the festering hole at the core of my being, which is what Anatman, the concept of no self talks about. 
And we have to turn that into the life healing flow, which springs up spontaneously from I know not where. So the Buddhist concept of emptiness of self goes from which we could argue is a very valuable concept that points to something like a real, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. Mm. But he has, he has to have that transform or turn around from this hole, this festering hole of nothing to a, a fullness of being so that he can allow Buddhism to continue to do his work. So I do the same thing with uh, um, the way that um, Garfield talks about desire as a existential, like he uses Heideggerian language to say desire is constitutive of existence, but then he can't abide that because you have to have a second noble truth function or the third noble truth function where there's an overcoming of this desire. So there's something about Buddhism, I'm arguing, that, that evades the consequences of its own, its own premises, its own postulates. And, and the, the way this evasion occurs is through this conceptual power practice, this turning away from the trajectory of the, the real Buddhist term, emptiness, no self, you know, pain, and turns it into something affirmative uh, in, in one sense or another. That's mm. that basically what the power practice is. It's a turning away. Uh, but in doing so, you're, mis, you're misspeaking or misconceptualizing because you're revealing the actual Buddhist identity, which remains hidden in its pretense to be a preeminent form of rigorous knowledge. Mm. And you could, you could put this maybe in kind of uh, the language of authenticity and authentic, inauthenticity, like it's not fully facing up to the consequences of what it does. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That, that's a major, a major point made in my critique. It's not, I'm not damning Buddhism or trying to reform it. I'm, I'm, it's kind of a theoretical critique that, that's, that's showing the identity of Buddhism of doing just what you said. You know, it's claiming one thing, but inauthentically actually doing another. Mm. And, you know, the examples you give, um, you argue, you know, there's an abundance of examples that you could give. And, you know, when I was reading the book, I was thinking, uh, you know, non non-self is often turned into kind of this um, oneness and kind of universal self that uh, yeah. is especially prevalent in, say, Chinese Buddhism. And, you know, you're not, your point is, isn't that, you know, Jay Garfield and uh, Lloyd are not doing Buddhism very well and you can do it better, but rather right. that, you know, in, in Buddhism itself, there is this kind of turning away from the full consequences of what, you know, the doctrine we're presented would actually say, you know. Yeah. Or, yeah. And in that regard, Loy and Garfield are, in fact, doing Buddhism very, very well. I, I'm saying this is actually constitutive of what it is to do Buddhism. This mm. is what, like, the, I have this notion of the ex-Buddhism. This is something that is, is loaded onto every ex, this practice of, of just as, you know, turning away from the full consequences of, of the, post, the Buddhist postulate. Um, and the reason I'm interested in working with this Buddhist material is I think, I think there's something very, very interesting and valuable happening there. And, I, and the non-Buddhist work is trying to get at what that might be. And this is why it turns into something that I think we might talk about a little bit later called Buddha fiction. Mm. Absolutely. So we can, yeah, so we can move on to kind of define ex-Buddhism because we've mentioned that a bit already. So ex-Buddhism, um, 
what is expertism? Well, it's really just a kind of fancy sounding term for, um, you know, Timothy Morton, for example, he, he, he criticized my term of ex-Buddhism because he said that it was uh, patronizing. Uh, he, he writes it, he, he wrote a text in his book, Nothing. He criticizes my project for being kind of, uh, you know, I, I've got, he calls ex-Buddhism a pejorative term. Um, how do you put it? He says, uh, I have a quote. He says, so it claims to be above, this is a quote, claims to be above and superior to the sectarianism so he say non-Buddhism claims to be above and superior to the sectarianism. What it patronizes is ex-Buddhism. But I want to say that's just a misunderstanding. Ex-Buddhism is just a way of talking about what he himself talks about. He refers to Buddhisms throughout uh, his text. And, you know, Jay Garfield says the Buddhist tradition, you know, it's this vast and diverse phenomenon. He says, but it has a unifying, uh, it's unified by a strong set of joint is a quote, unified by a strong set of joint broad commitments that define the position as Buddhist. And I'm just saying, I want to do a critique. And it's, you know, it's really hard to critique Buddhism because there's so many different kinds of Buddhisms. And there are, there's so many texts and teachings and nuanced positions within Buddhism that it becomes almost virtually impossible to critique it because the second you offer critique, someone will counter with, well, this tradition says, well, my teacher says, well, this text says, it's impossible to really perform a critique uh, because there are always going to be counterexamples. So what I decided to do was to follow Laura Wells' example. He talks about the philosophy um, as, as a way of talking about all philosophy as partaking in a, a, a kind of a identifiably and universal set of practices that define it as philosophy as opposed to any other discipline we could name. So that's what ex-Buddhism is. It's like, it could be Vipassana Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, Soto Zen Buddhism, Rinzai Zen Buddhism, Genmukpa Buddhism, you know, mindfulness Buddhism. It doesn't matter. It's all the same in that it participates in a similar identity that is recognizable through certain kinds of practice, practices, such as the first one we mentioned so far is a parapraxis and mm -hmm. other practices which the critique names. Yeah. So if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna criticize um, an object, you need a name for it, basically. You know, you can't kind of, <laughs> you can't just. Yeah. I guess you could point at it, but you kind of, you do need to um, kind of name something in a way to actually talk about it. I guess I can understand, you know, when you use the phrase ex-Buddhism, it is always something that you're criticizing. Yeah. So I can at least understand why they might think it would be a kind of pejorative term. Right. Because it's something you've invented, and then you, or well, it's a term that you've invented, and then you yeah. criticize. But also, yeah, you do need a name for what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, whatever that may be. I agree with you. Like, it, it sounds dismissive. Like, you have all these fancy, you know, beautiful you know, ancient traditions that are being kind of reduced down to this a lowercase x, right? Hmm. I mean, I can see how that can be seen as. Uh, you know, uh, pejorative. I can ask, I can see that, but um, I, I explain very clearly that's that's not how it's like being used at all. Buddhisms is another thing you could say. I, I don't know. I'm not interested. Yeah. The, the publisher wanted me to to specify Western Buddhism in the book, like mm. you know, that Buddhism would be too broad. So I called it a critique of Western Buddhism. But the concept of ex-Buddhism allows me to say that this is really a a broader critique of 
of all things that go under the name of Buddhism. And it's not meant pejoratively. Right. I mean, so, so you did use a lowercase b, which some people might object to, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, just, just real quickly, it's, it's an attempt to, part of, part of the, like a, a real strong premise running throughout this critique that I share with Laura Wells' work on non-philosophy is that there's something, there's something almost dangerous in, in you know, uppercase authoritative right. uh, kinds of, uh, you know, nouns. Uh, Wittgenstein said, like, the nouns are the most dangerous things because as soon as the brain hears about the noun, it, it's catalyzed in believing there must be some reality that stands behind that noun. That noun has a capital letter, even all the more so, kind of ultimacy, like it's sort of woven into the cosmos. So, so it's just an attempt to kind of deflate Buddhism in a way because one of the ideas is that Buddhism is interesting to us or should be or is interesting to me because it's a simple human cultural material that things can be done to. So it's just another attempt to deflate its authority. Mm. Okay, so ex-Buddhism, um, it's kind of, the ex is the placeholder for whatever form of Buddhism, exactly. be it Rinzai Buddhism, Tiantai, Theravada, socially engaged Buddhism, whatever exactly. else. Mindfulness even, yeah. Mm. Okay, and you argue that ex-Buddhism has a decision which is related to the kind of natural language use of decision, but you're, you're talking about a very specific thing that you think Western Buddhism as an entity does um, with this decision. So what is, what is the decision? You're, you're right. I mean, there is a certain everyday language component in that decision. It simply means like to be a subject of Buddhism or a sub, good subject to a form, you know, a good practitioner of a form of thought whatever is political religious or philosophical ideological in any way means when you're thinking about things you know, the self consciousness how to be ethics decision means that you you're going to always decide for the the ideology that that you subscribe to and you the, the better the more reflexively you decide in that fashion the better of a subject to that ideological formation you are you don't even have to think about it anymore you know like my daughter studies political science in college and she's amazed at how you know the fellow students like you already know where the position is going to be on something because they reflexively respond out of their ideological their subject position so in a sense that, that decision is nothing more in, in that sense but just deciding for the buddhist idea the buddhist claim that you're you know that, that you, you've been studying, you're a member of. Um, but you're right, it has a much more technical sense. And that technical sense has to do, and this comes out a lot of well again, uh, decision is a cut. So Buddhism is a form of thought that claims something for itself like a phenomenological verifiability. It, it's not like Christianity that you know, posits some transcendent other that that you you can only have faith in because of the very nature of its transcendence, there'll never be imminent or empirical evidence for um, decision becomes problematic in certain philosophical traditions and you know traditions like Buddhism um, because so imminently what does Buddhism give us? It gives us concepts like 
the, the concepts I work with are samsara and praticca samapada, or you know the the ocean, the existence as a as a perpetual ocean of of turbulence, a space of a place of turbulence and difficulty and pain, and, and as soon as something goes right, then it goes wrong again, and nothing can ever go right at once. That's samsara. So it's a mm. it's a supposedly phenomenologically verifiable claim about human existence, and I think it's accurate. I think we can make a good case that it's an excellent concept for understanding our human situation. Another imminental concept is dependent origination, which explains why what happens happens. So another, you know, a sensibly empirically grounded concept that we can use. The problem is, in order for Buddhism to ground imminental concepts, it, it requires... A, a transcendent supplement in order if it didn't have this transcendent supplement it would be nothing other than something that competes with say science or, or sociology or or anthropology or other kinds of disciplines that are also claiming to offer empirically grounded phenomenologically verifiable claims about human existence so decision is that buddhism has to cut off it's, it's imminent claims and ground them in the transcendent claims, such as the Dharma. I, t mm. I use the concept of Dharma as being the transcendent supplement that, uh, that turns Buddhism from a kind of science of the real or of reality into um, you know kind of visionary form of knowledge that it is. And th that's a real problem for a tradition. Like, like, like imagine if science did that if it grounded its empirical methods into some sort of, of transcendent concept, that would be very, very problematic. Right. So, you know, you're taking Buddhism as it appears as having this foundationalist perspective where if you go, well, so you believe um, that samsara um, or the description of samsara that you gave is true about the world. And if someone was to say why, you know, the Buddhist response typically would be, well, that's what the Dharma says, you know, the, the, the Buddha said it. And then you get this, is there a further grounding to this? Or is it just because someone said so and went to kind of take it as that? So there's this kind of transcendental grounding. Yeah, and, 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 and within that transcendental grounding is a whole host of, I call like the Voltaic, network of postulation it's not just that it's the dharma you know it's, it's kind of like think of how complex christian theology is like god is 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 a it's profoundly complex notion like you know theology is really a complex human discipline it's the same with the dharma it's not just when you're making the decision to explain so what makes samsara true you could go one direction which be, would be into the imminent into the empirical in which case mm. You, you would want the allyship of disciplines like science or, you know, psychology or these other kinds of supposedly empirical methods. Um, and that leads to something that I call the great feast of knowledge, that, that Buddhism would then start interacting with allied disciplines to try to figure all of this important stuff out. Instead, to be Buddhism, to maintain the identity of Buddhism, you're right, it goes to this direction of the transcendental dharma within which... It are are it, the Dharma is like a cosmic, uh, you know, treasure chest of ideas and concepts and beliefs 
So then you start interacting, not just with the Dharma per se as a concept, but all those postulates related to it. And then you found yourself into what I would call a visionary form of knowledge rather than in a phenomenologically verified empirical, immanental form of knowledge, which I don't care. It's just that Buddhism is saying it's claiming the latter for itself, I believe. I mean, not all Buddhism. There are, there are forms of Buddhism that, uh, that are okay with the transcendence, absolutely. Um, um, that, that's a whole other topic, though. Right. So, so in the book, so if we can focus on Dharma, because um, the kind of Kafka parable of the law um, is quite a kind of well-known one, and you cover it. Am I, oh. so, so Dharma can be translated as law, right? So is that what you're kind of yep. getting at there, that the fact that yeah. it's kind of invented in the same way that in the Kafka parable it is? I think so. I mean... I'd have to go back and read that parable and recall right. what I was thinking at the time. But, but I, I do think that the concept of law, like uppercase law, uh, comes into play there. I actually um, had a conversation with um, a, a judge recently, and, 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 and she was asking me um, kind of what some of this non-philosophy stuff about. And she totally got it through how lawyers and judges talk about the law. Yeah, it's like there's this thing, the law, that is over and above any social formation, or, you know, any temporal, cultural, social formation. Um, it's grounded in some sort of universal right. You know, you, you know, in the German, in this this person was a German, a German judge, and she was, you know, Recht is the word for law. It also means right. So, and Dharma is the same. Dharma means. The law, it means the, what is right. It means the teaching. So I have the saying, the Dharma is the Dharma because of the Dharma. That's, that's Buddhist identity. <laughs> it's like the circularity. You know, you can interchange all these different meanings. The teachings are right because of the cosmic law, and so forth. Mm. Again, in terms of um, decision, that kind of cutting off from its empirical, imminental claims is a problem, I, I would argue. Mm. Okay, so, um, and a lot of this relates to the principle of sufficient Buddhism, which yeah. you identify. Um, so, you know, I can summarize that as the view that everything is Buddhistizable, but there's still quite a, quite a lot to, um, you know, identify and define there. So what is, what is the pr principle of sufficient Buddhism? Well, again, it comes from Laura Well, which gets, who gets a final I always, I always get Leibniz and Spinoza mixed up, but I think that they, they both had a concept of, principle of sufficient reason right so no, uh, it i think so i might be wrong i think it's like this i might be okay wrong. so it's this basic idea that you know everything that exists must have a reason cause ground you know for existing uh so laurel says philosophy the principle of sufficient philosophy is that is that philosophy is able to you know everything is philosophizable anything that exists can be philosophized, art, science, you know, you know, psychology, politics. There's a there's this philosophy of everything. Philosophy is able to encompass everything. And Laura Laura says um, he says um, I wrote here in my in my book the fir the first critical op observation we make about Western Buddhism is that it is and this is a quote from Laura regulated in accordance with the principle higher than that of reason, unquote. So Buddhism is, the, the principle of sufficient Buddhism says that 
that Buddhism is able to better determine whatever object is under investigation, even it can better determine it even than the discipline that is positing, you know, the object or the phenomenon. Like Buddhism knows better than psychology. Buddhism knows better than physics. Have you ever heard the Dalai Lama talk to physicists? You know, Buddhism knows better than politics. Buddhism can always act on the local material and improve it somehow. And so this is, this is basically the principle of sufficient and that Buddhism is also sufficient. You don't need to have um, a robust understanding of what the other disciplines claim. In order to be a good Buddhist subject, all you need to do is understand the Buddhist position on the phenomenon. And again, that's problematic for very obvious reasons. And it's something that, um, that Buddhism must at all costs preserve in order to be Buddhism. If it, if, if it gets rid of the principle of sufficiency, then it becomes just another local knowledge that's in competition with whatever it is, you know, it's politics, political science, psychology, or whatever. Mm. So, and we can relate this as well, because, um, you know, my background is philosophy primarily, and a lot of this you're kind of um, reappropriating for your purposes from uh, Francois Laruelle. So yeah. he critiques, I'm, I'm not super familiar with his work, but from what I understand from um, your work and a few introductions is that he critiques philosophy and he posits a principle of sufficient philosophy, right? Which he criticizes. Exactly. Yes. There's so many, there is this kind of view that philosophy can be applied to anything, right? You know, philosophy yes. of sport, philosophy of... Yeah. The uh, philosophy of leisure, you know? Yeah. <laughs> You're criticizing the same view also that kind of philosophy can be applied to everything and is kind of above everything else as a form of knowledge. Yeah. I mean... That, that's why I posited something called the Great Feast of Knowledge, which is kind of a thought experiment that says, imagine Buddhism walking into a, a massive hall of all these different representatives from all these different disciplines. And say it goes and it, it leaves all its regalia and its weaponry at the door, and everyone's just in there like in plain clothes. No one can tell you know, who's who and what they belong to. And the, mm. Buddha, the Buddhist representatives sit down at the table with biology and phys physics and art and, and other disciplines they have a conversation about desire and, and all the sort sudden buddhism doesn't have the authority that it grants itself so it has to defend its notions of desire as saying being problematic and root you know the cause of suffering um like i say biology and biology say like wait a minute there's no desire there's no life desire was precisely mm. what drives reproduction and and then what, what, what does art say? What does poetry say about desire? You know, and so forth. Um, mm. Yeah, the, so the principle of sufficiency is, is kind of, you know, it's an authoritarian move that, that delimits the production of knowledge and understanding. And, mm. it, and it always produces, this is the idea of the auto-donation, uh, it always produces more Buddhism, the, the principle of sufficient Buddhism. What it only ever produces is more Buddhism more Buddhist knowledge, which is arguably visionary rather than what it claims for itself, you know, um, phenomenologically verifiable. Mm. So that's, 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 yeah. yeah, that's why it's an important concept. Right. And so currently taking the thought experiment, you know, 
the Western Buddhist currently would come in and would go, well, I made all this food at this feast or, yeah. you know, I cooked it or something like that. Whereas you would prefer that they come in, uh, you know, as peers. Yes. And so that, that and that's really important. That notion of, 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 of being a peer, a, a big idea running throughout Laruel's non-philosophy, my non-Buddhism and the work of other people, you know, like Katharina Kolozova does work on non-Marxism. Mm. You know, uh, Anthony Paul Smith is, is, is kind of a non-Islam. There are other people applying Laurel's. Laurel himself, I mean, non-philosophy itself is, is nothing. It's uninteresting. It, it's, it doesn't produce knowledge. It, it's not saying anything about ontology or epistemology. It doesn't produce knowledge of the world. It gives you a set of tools to apply to a regional knowledge, like a local knowledge, like you know, a more specific knowledge, like Buddhism. And, 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 and do a certain kind of work on the material. Um, yeah, so a, a real important point running throughout this stuff is that all knowledges are, in the first instance, um, they lie flat on the ground. None, there is no hierarchy of knowledges. In the first instance, you know, you have to then start having a conversation and then divergences will, will appear, you know, like more yeah. rigorous thought, you know, more you know, thinking that gives you more confidence because it has evidence or whatever, that sort of thing. But initially, it's not the case. So there's this idea of there being a democracy of thought that in the first instance, all these forms of thought are equal. It's kind of a democracy of them uh, rather than, a, you know, fascism of them. Um, mm. So the peerage, being peers is an important concept here. Mm. And again, it points to the fact that what this kind of work is about is not figuring out who has the best understanding of something, but more interested in thinking about Buddhism or Buddhism as, you know, producing knowledge or something. It's thinking with Buddhism to see what we can produce. Right. There's less competitiveness occurring between disciplines in this non way of approaching things. Right. So, yeah, so just very briefly as well, like one thing I want to um, kind of check. So you're very familiar with the kind of Pali canon um, and the kind of uh, a lot of the impressions that I get. I, I imagine there's kind of one that specifically says this, but, you know, there's the kind of view that uh, in traditional Buddhism, that if the Buddha, when he was enlightened, directed his attention to anything, he could become, you know, sentient of that. There's this kind of potential omniscience. Yes. Right. And that's probably come over um, from traditional Buddhism to allow this um, principle of sufficient Buddhism within Western Buddhism. Yeah, that's a very interesting parallel. In, in, a, in a sense, you could say that Buddhism grants that, that kind of omniscience for itself, right? Anything that it turns its attention to, it can, you know, it, it knows about. Mm. Okay. And I, there's actually a little bit of a discussion on, on omniscience in the book because mm. uh, that yeah, does lead to some very interesting observations about Buddhism's view of itself as being kind of all-knowing and so forth. Mm. Okay, so in your critique, you know, so we've got to the critique. Uh, we've already done it in terms of kind of um, criticizing, right? You know, we've said this is what we don't like about Western Buddhism and um, you know, some people will find this convincing, some people won't. Um, you know, that's what happens whenever they read a book. So yeah. <laughs> now you say kind of when you define a critique, I, I don't have the exact thing in front of me, but it's something like 
resting the vital potentiality from you know what you're criticizing as well as just um kind of saying what you don't like about it we're actively yeah. finding what we do like about it exactly. and you, so what you like is the real um and i feel i feel like this isn't a bit of an unfair question i saw your your panel at harvard uh, where they asked you to find the, the real and it's it's incredibly difficult concept to define but um kind of how does it play in your critique primarily so yeah that's great like i thought that thing at harvard was so funny because that it would be totally predictable that everyone in such a setting, all they want to know about is like, so what does this stuff say about the real? And that just points to a move that must be made and which is, is made in this non-critique, uh, which is the ax axiomatization, axiomatizing of the real. So I'll say something about that. I, I do want to say, yeah, I'm glad you picked out that uh, Marjorie Gracius quote, which um, it goes, it, because that does, I really want to emphasize, like, the, the point of this non-critique is not a revision of Buddhism, it's not a correction of Buddhism, it's not a, like, one-upping of Buddhism, it's not a creation of a new, better form of Buddhism. It's it's precisely what this this quote says, and I'll read it for your, your listeners. It comes from um, a philosopher named Marjorie Gracius, uh, who says, what we're doing when we're doing a, this kind of critique is, she quote, resting vital potentialities of humans from the artificial forms and static norms that subjugate them. So there is an assumption that uh, Buddhism contains vital potentialities of us humans. It has, it contains wonderful, powerful concepts and practices for understanding our human situation, for becoming whatever kinds of subjects you want to do with that, you know, courageous subjects in the world who advocate for, for justice or who, you know, have, have insight into the machinations that are hidden from most of us. So, so it contains vital potentialities, but these vital potentialities get trapped in the artificial forms, sort of doctrinal formulations, uh, and, and, you know, ideological formations and static norms uh, that then subjugate the individual. So the individual becomes a kind of living, walking, embodied hallucination machine that, you know, the Buddhist looks out and all the Buddhist ever sees is Buddhist concepts and, you know, manifested in the world. So the, the, the emphasis is on the resting of the vital potentialities of the material. So it's ultimately a kind of critique that, is 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 meant to be extremely productive, but not productive in a way that the tradition probably would appreciate because yeah. it's messing with it in, in too fundamental of a way. So, yeah, this idea of the real, um, it, it's it's sort of central to to this work. Um, so the re the real has lots of meanings in human like Western thought. Maybe we could do Taoism mm -hmm. if we wanted to know that, but let's look at the West. Like going back to Plotinus, the idea of the one, you know, all of philosophy, what is it, you know, religion, trying to recognize something that is so fundamentally true that not knowing about it, not fusing with it, not understanding it, not whatever the metaphor is, you know, uh, becoming one with it, um, 
is is to be debilitated in a in a in a in a in a in a in a, in a very very serious way. Um, so so one way of talking about the real is it gives us a way of talking about features that have been disavowed, like features of reality that we don't admit or permit uh, within our symbolic systems, our our language and our concepts, because it it, it threatens the it threatens to sunder the our the construct you know our ordered construction which is called reality it, it, it threatens to it threatens our sense of meaning and so forth so we leave these aspects of human existence out of our uh, symbolic systems I mean you know psychoanalysis is very keyed on that sort of thing like there's all these things that are true and real but we can't admit them so we bury them in our subconsciousness and we also bury them in in society and in culture. So, you know, Zizek's work is very interesting in that he, he elucidates a lot of Lacanian notions of the real through popular culture, like the horror movie is a good example for him, like that there's something that's not present in our experience. We're up in the living room, a bunch of teenagers having a party, but there's some like monster down in the basement hidden that is, that is creating, it's productive of, a, of, of something in our reality, but we can't quite name it or admit it. So th that's one way of talking about a real. Um, you know, this kind of more religious way of talking about the real is what I intimated at first is a facet of existence that is presupposed, uh, yet is somehow unaffected by these human symbolic systems like God or the absolute or truth. Or whatever it's something that is it's not in reality but it's something that that affects reality that so th these are you know i quote terry eagleton in here somewhere um mm. can't remember where where he talks about the sort of more literary realism like a meta sign an empty element in in any system mm. that 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 really if you could get at it it functions to reveal the fact that that system cannot be totalized. Like Buddhism has this with the notion of emptiness. Emptiness is a Buddhist real. Emptiness, if taken seriously, also has to reveal the emptiness of Buddhism itself. Uh, that mm. Buddhism itself has no foundational core that gives it the kind of validity and authority that it wants to claim for itself. So, so, so the, these are different examples of the real. But I have to say, Laruel will have none of this. Like these are all way too philosophical examples of the real. And one of the things that the non does is it, 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 it refuses to make incursions into the real, make claims about what the real is, and then project that back out again. That's precisely what he calls hallucination or auto auto-reflection, like Buddhism gazes into the real and what Buddhism sees is not the real, but it sees Buddhism itself. So say pain, this is my analysis using Jay Garfield, um, pain is a Buddhist real. Bo you know, Buddhists will say the pain is endemic. It's, it is, it is, it's like, and this is an example coming of, oh, I think this is a Garfield's example of my own, but it's like, um, uh, I think it's my own example, like it's like, uh, it's like uh, concrete is not an element within the road. Concrete is the road. What would it mean to take the concrete out of the road? That's an idea of pain as a real. Um, so, 
The problem is, is that Buddhism postulates pain as dukkha, and it has all these postulates about what dukkha is, and it makes the mistake, and the fancy term that Laruel uses is amphibology. It's a word that means that there's a grammatical error that has occurred, and it, it, it causes a, a, a poor thinking. Um, so the amphibology is that Buddhism mistakes its notion of dukkha for pain, the real of pain itself. And it projects this back out into the world. It's, this is what pain is. So Laura Wells say there's no wind to this sort of amphibology, this, this kind of hallucinatory error. Um, so he wants to axiomatize it, um, the real. So, I mean, maybe I should pause there and see if you have, have any responses to that before I say what the axiomatized real might be. That, does that make sense so far about what the real is? It's what everyone desires and wants to know about. It's, the real is, that, isn't that why we do this work in philosophy and humanities and science and everything else? It's like, what is, what is fundamentally, ultimately true about our bizarre situation, being on this tiny speck of, of dust in this vast cosmos or maybe multi-universe? Like, what the hell is ultimately going on here? Mm. So... The, the assumption is that it captures the real captures our desire to understand. And this is what, how these systems of thought perpetuate a kind of capture of the human, because they say, we know how to get there. We know how to understand this thing. Whether it's psychoanalysis, do the psychoanalysis, you will come to this kind of understanding of the unconscious, you know, whatever discipline you want to name, I think you could see that some notion of the real as something that must be known is operating. And then you can look at how that tradition functions to capture the desire of the potential practitioner you know, to, to participate. Does that make a little sense? Yeah, I think so. So one thing I want to see if I can understand a bit is that there's kind of, so you deal with um, uh, Zizek's uh, kind of, uh, you know, approach to the real and then Eagleton's, which seems to have a reasonable amount in common so you know there's kind of uh it's not captured uh no matter how we try to capture it with our system of thought um whatever this thing is and it kind of is self-reflective on that system of thought in a way um you know there's kind of that's what roughly say what they seem to be saying whereas kind of with laruel what is Laruel's relationship with the real in comparison to that? Because I know that you said, well, he wouldn't be happy um, with a lot of discussion about the real. Would he be unhappy with how you talk about it? And when he says um, the one, is he saying yeah. the same thing as the real there? He is. And so he, I, I use these other thinkers, like I, I say in the very introduction that the real uh, names some profoundly productive a priori uh, awareness of which is absolutely essential for human awakening and for liberation. Um, so Lacan and what Eagleton says, or Zizek, or, you know, some of these other thinkers are, their notions of the real can get us a, a certain distance for, for doing the kind of work that I'd like to be doing in a critique of Buddhism, because Buddhism offers lots of concepts for the real, emptiness, no self, pain, dependent origination. Um, so it, it is a, a discourse that participates in, you know, in this, in the real. 
and yet something happens um, along the way. So uh, these other definitions of the real ideas can get us a certain way towards understanding what happens in Buddhism. So, but at some point, they have to be put aside. Um, it's very, very important, Laura, well, that the real just becomes an axiom. And mm. so I, I have a quote that might be useful here from, uh, I use, say, what is, what is an axiom? So this guy, physicist says, uh, Robert Brown, he says, axioms are not self-evident truths in any sort of rationalist system. They are unprovable assumptions whose truth or falsehood should always be mentally prefaced with an implicit, if we assume that. So they're really just, they're really just assertions or propositions to which we give a special primal status and exempt from the necessity of independent truth. So Laura Well will say the real becomes the real. The, the one is a synonym for the real. Sometimes it's the real, sometimes it's the one, sometimes it's the real one. Um, becomes a fecund function of human thought. It's, 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 it's an axiom that we work with in order to see what happens with with other other ideas and other practices, it's in, just like in mathematics. It's it's a starting point to do a certain kind of work, and and that says a lot about what non philosophy or non Buddhism is. It's not that's one reason I think people have a hard time wrapping their heads around. It. It's not another way of gathering you know knowledge about what is what is true. It's it's a way. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of experiencing thinking. It's a it's it's a way of working with material, and and refashioning for whatever ideological purposes you might have. That's fundamentally different than the project of philosophy or religion, say, which is claiming to to have the goods on, on the real. Mm. So so Larwell will by all means say, uh, we. Let's let's posit the real uh, axiomatically, and foreclose it to the incursions of any system of thought. So, in, in some sense, he says Buddhism is interesting. Or he'll say philosophy. I'll say Buddhism is interesting, not in what it says about the real, but in how it resists this real, because it, it always has to it always has to make incursions into the real of pain or the real of emptiness avoid and and make declarations and proclamations and determinations and representations about it so in some sense what produces buddhism is its very resistance in the manner in which it resists this foreclosed real so i guess we could kind of um emphasize the difference between an axiom and the decision that we talked about earlier so an axiom am i right in saying that an axiom is like a kind of open assumption that right at the start of a kind of you know your philosophy book you would say this is the thing I'm assuming you know I'm not grounding this in anything um it's kind of I'm originally telling myself this story that this is the case and I'm not claiming that it is actually the case it's kind of just this assumption and we see what follows from that yes we see what what can be produced out of that and then we can make we can argue and make make claims and you know, debate whether or not what is produced out of that is something valuable or not. But that's a whole different project that you just described mm. from what people usually think of philosophy, religion, and so forth. Right. So, yes, that's right. That's the axiom, axiomatic aspect of the real. Mm. It's saying, let's assume this thing that, you know, whether it's an unconscious or whatever, 
And I, I'll tell you now that I think when he talks about the one, I think Lorwell can't say this because he doesn't want to create just another, you know, catalyzing system of thought to be, you know, to catalyze the desire of the person. He wants to create a bunch of tools to use to understand the identity of systems of thought and more. He wants to do more than that. But in the first instance, um, but in a lot of times, I think the one is simply a word for the human being. The human being cannot, you cannot create determinations about the human being or no representation matches the experience of the human being. But what is the point of any of this work if it's not, you know, the human being or even animals? Like in his later work, he even starts talking about sentient beings generally, like including animals. Like what are we talking about? We're not talking about, you know, us sentient creatures in, in the world. So in some sense, I think the, the one a lot of times, but he can never quite say that because then he'd be lapsing into this yet another form of determination and representation. There's something right. very opaque about Laravel's style. It's like Emily Dickens <laughs> said, tell it slant. He does that and for a reason because he doesn't want to create just another system to capture your desire to get at the real once and for all. Mm. Okay, so... Yeah, so from your kind of uh, interpretation of Laruel as kind of focusing on the human, um, this kind of can bring us quite nicely to the imminent transcendence distinction that seems quite central here. So um, as I understand it, this kind of originates in Immanuel Kant's work um, on the distinction between kind of what is imminent um, and kind of immediately accessible to us and then what is transcendent and is how things uh how things really are but kind of actually inaccessible to us and um you know there's not a huge amount of value or working there's not a huge amount of epistemic um access that we have to these things um so is is that characterization right and then kind of how does it play in your work uh in the book yeah, that's absolutely right. Eh? The, the Kantian idea, I think, was, you, you know better than I do, your philosophy student, Descartes, was he the one who originally came up with this distinction, this imminence transcendence distinction, and in, in, in this, like, he has this idea of the transcendental illusion, right? Mm. That, that reason can posit anything. He, he talked about a subjective necessity of the connection of our concepts for an objective necessity in the determinations of things in the self, that we, that we, we confuse that. We think that just because reason composites something, again, it's kind of what Wittgenstein said, I guess, that there must be a reality uh, that that that, post, that that conceptualization determines. Um, I I do think that's real important. I, I think Kant's distinction point, like I have this quote, he says, we will call the principles whose application stays wholly and completely within the limits of possible experience imminent but those that would fly beyond those boundaries transcendent. So we know like human, human, human thinking is so rich, you know, we, that we're constantly, there are no boundaries to it in a way. We can posit all kinds of incredible realities. I mean, I live in a, Trump's America. I mean, all kinds of realities are posited that people then accept to be real and true, uh, right, you know, if you read the newspaper about what's going on here, you'll understand what I mean. Um, 
mm. which points to something, you know, an argument to be made for the importance of of a form of thought that that valorizes that 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 insists on on imminence, on insists on on articulating what is within the limits of possible experience. Because if we're talking about um, about ourselves, our lives in the world, yes, we might have, you know, we, 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 th this doesn't foreclose on the possibility of rich, you know, you know fantasy and, and music and art and culture and narratives and meaning making and all of that. It just speaks to our, our understanding of the nature of, of those kinds of meaning making, you know, rich activities. In other words, they themselves are imminent. There, mm. There's something coming out of our, our human situation, trying to make sense of our human situation. The problem becomes when, when, when it flies beyond that human situation into something that is transcendent in that religious sense of being beyond time and space, yet truer than anything in this world. Truer, a truer world. Nietzsche talks about that. There's the actual world and then there's the true world. It creates, you know, he, he said it creates a fetishization of the concepts of that, that are, are the names of that true world, God, absolute, nirvana, whatever. Um, so I, I have a little argument here. I, I actually explicitly say, like, why is imminence necessarily a good and why is transcendence necessarily a bad? So it's, it's in the book there a little bit. And, you know, it's... Like, I can't ground it on anything, but I can make an argument for why imminence is good. And in a way, that, that's what Laura Well is often lumped with philosophers of imminence like Deleuze and so forth, Heidegger. And, uh, so, yeah, that, that my, my own interest in Buddhism from the very beginning was that I thought it was an imminental teaching. A teaching. In fact, I used to always say, I, I think we should invent, like, you know, this transcendental meditation. I was thinking like, Buddhists should invent imminental meditation. Like it's all about becoming more deeply, you know, embodied in the earth and in social formations and so forth. So, mm. okay. So, yeah, well, I guess you have made an argument already, you know, kind of right at the start where you were kind of like, well, you know, we don't really need to kind of uh, go to transcendence um, you know, as we kind of roughly understand this, that kind of already what is imminent is so rich and kind of more reliable in a sense that kind of we don't need to get bound up in going and transcending everything um, if we can help it because we're likely to go to what you call like a hallucination. Right. And, and, that, and that, that, you know, Kant has a concept of transcendental illusion, like now, who wants to be involved in illusion or hallucination? But it's a whole another matter to to say we can we can craft we can produce incredibly rich, you know, even fantastical material for ourselves. As way you know, Dada is really cool. Science fiction is really cool and insightful, and um, you know, but it's a certain attitude and relationship to that material that keeps it within the imminent. Um, you know, Laurel will even criticize Deleuze for his concept of the plane of eminence because he thinks he thinks that it the notion of an absolute eminence is already too transcendent in a way that 
that Laurel will even allow, Laurel's this concept of radical imminence by which he means minimally transcendent or maximally imminent, which allows for the fact that you know, transcendence is in our midst. Language is transcendent in a way. It, it's, you know, th th there's always something that is beyond and not quite present, potentiality or the virtual. Um, it's just a question of, of how far we allow ourselves to fly off in those directions and lose our imminent tethering. Mm. And it, it's just a value thing. There's no, you can't make any, any ultimate argument for this. It's just a position to take and to make arguments for. I'm not like I'm not doing an explication of Laurel. I just use Laurel terms. My real interest in Buddhism, Buddhism, I think, or at least Western Buddhism, and many forms of Buddhism, you know, present themselves as as fully occupied with imminence. So, I guess we can move on to the kind of the stranger subject. So, this is kind of something that's really central. It's another quite um, difficult concept. I found it uh, like the real. So. You say multiple, I think you say exactly this multiple times throughout the book, and I'll kind of quote it here. If I do succeed in my plan, it is only to view the ensuing ruin in the glow of a stranger, more creaturely light. Um, yeah. So we're not talking about the stranger subject there necessarily, but clearly there's kind of, you think at least Buddhism thinks, you argue, so that then even Buddhism itself, you want to be this kind of strange subject, um, and you want the people who follow non-Buddhism um, to be stranger subjects themselves. So what is a stranger subject? That's a great question. I'm, um, I think, you know, so I'm not talking about Laura Wells' notion of a stranger subject. I'm talking mm -hmm. about kind of what I did with his notion. Um, so some, it's, it's sort of, in, some of his ideas may be interwoven in this, but there's some Laura Wells scholars out there listening. A lot of what I'm saying <laughs> is just my kind of creative you know, appropriation of Laura Wells' idea. I, I, I found it, you know, I, I thought I could have talked about, and I do this in my last chapter, I, I talk about the Buddhist subject, like the, this lowercase b Buddhist subject as a subject of, of these ideas as leading to, as having something to do with the kind of human awakening. So I, I could have done that, but I, I thought I'll just, I'll, the, the, the notion of stranger subject could do a lot of interesting work. So for example, um, the stranger is someone who, so when you do this kind of work, when you come to these kinds of, you know, when you, when you axiomatically apply these principles, you become a person who resists, who is capable of becoming estranged from um, yourself, basically, um, from the generic human that you are, you know, prior to the, the, the you know the workings of of subjectification and so forth. Not that there is any real prior, like, but as close as we can get to that as possible. So the stranger is someone who resists ideological determinations of the person or whatever, uh, who resists the kind these kinds of uh, forms of capture that we've been talking about in our conversation. The stranger is estranged from from those kinds of, of, of ideological systems of capture. And in, in so being estranged, the stranger is someone who is estranged from the status quo that he or she is a, a party to, a member of. It's, it's, it's a strange, it's a literally strange person 
because of his or her relationship to the kinds of, of formations that surround us and bombard us constantly, making violent incursions into our lives for how to think, how to be. You know, you know are you familiar with like the Society of the Spectacle, Guy Debord? Is that familiar to you? Uh, no, not no, not for me. But it sounds very might, interesting. I think you would find it interesting because it has a lot of resonances with a lot of these themes we're talking about. But mm. a stranger is someone who, who can resist, you know, the spectacle to to a certain extent. That's a, that is an extent that makes that person even kind of a, a, appear strange in the world. Um, it's a subject type. It doesn't really name an actual human being in the world. It's more of a model of a human being in relationship to these kinds of machinations that are constantly trying to exert authority over us. And this isn't, you know, an individualistic streak where you're kind of like, oh, we need to stop um, kind of subjugating individuals with their um, kind of the ideologies that we put on them. And, you know, it's, it's not really a kind of uh, existential individualism. Um, this is kind of like a very broad kind of notion of a subject. Yeah, I, I think I think ultimately, like, there's something in this thought that is anti-individualistic. There's something about it that's very socially oriented. Certainly in the way I do non-Buddhism is the individualism, the atomized person is a problem, you know, um, mm. because one of the assumptions is that we're, we're socially you know, we're formed in society, you know, what does it even mean to be an individual? Um, um, so yes, mm. um, I, I did find, I, I found a quote here that might be worth reading. It's, it's, I write that this is a remarkably positive statement coming from Laura Well. It's almost like a non-philosophical affirmation, which is very rare. And he says it in relationship to a, the stranger subject. So maybe I'll read that. He says, um, the problem is how to use philosophy so as to effect a real transformation of the subject in such a way as to allow it to break the spell of its bewitchment by the world and enable it to constitute itself through a certain struggle with the latter. There's very much a rhetoric of struggle in mm. strength or subjectivity. The goal is not to effect a specular doubling or duplication of the world, just replicate the status quo, thereby reinforcing its grip, but to elaborate a new order, that of the radical subjectivity of the stranger as subject to is in struggle by definition. So, you know, I think that's very much like the Buddhist subject to me is a, is, it's a person who is in struggle against the forces of the world. Like going back to the Buddhist story of you know, leaving society, going into the woods, sitting under the tree, and even as he tried to break out of his, his you know, addiction to the ways of the world, his capture, enslavement to his world. In the story, you know, he's, he's accosted, he's attacked by all these forces, lust, desire, all that delusion. Remember in the story? To me, that, that says something very much like becoming a stranger subject, that you become estranged from the very thing that defines subjectivity in the spectacle of, of the world. You become liberated from that, but in that liberation, you're also estranging yourself from a certain kind of acquiescence or participation, acquiescence to or participation in the world. So 
it, it has a lot of parallels, I think, to what, what I would eventually call the Buddha subject, which I start kind of tracing in the last chapter. Mm. So, and that kind of, that chapter to, to me, um, you, you mentioned the kind of Larowell book that, or is it a chapter that kind of is quite experimental? And that's quite an experimental chapter also. And you kind of, you argue that the stranger subject will create um, a Buddha fiction. So my impression from that chapter is that you're kind of starting this creation of a Buddha fiction. You've been doing it throughout the book, but now that you've That's really exactly kind of, right. yeah. yeah, now that you've established what it is, you can really get into doing that. So, yeah. so what is Buddha fiction? I mean, I mean, basically it's just, first of all, it acknowledges that as I start, I have a chapter on Buddha fiction and it starts off just explaining all the different ways that Buddhism itself is is like in love with fiction. Like it's all mm. fiction, almost the fictionality almost defines Buddhism. Um, you know, I, I write Buddhism as a fascination with, with fi fiction. Arguably fiction is the reigning trope of ex-Buddhist thought. You know, talk about magical illusion and conjuring, the conjuration of our perceptual apparatus of, charmer of the childlike that is the mind it talks about woven dreams woven in the mind of one drunk with sleep and then it, it even talks about you know that, that the buddha the story about the buddha itself is often recognizably fiction um mm. i mean it was crafted by a poet ashvagosha long after the buddha's death um so fiction already defines buddhism but again there's a misturning a conceptual parapraxis that it, it won't recognize that. It won't go so far as recognizing that fact for itself. So basically, Buddha fiction is the idea that let's take seriously, let's be explicit about the fact that we're, we're crafting fictions. But they're fictions that have ideological substance to them. And they're, they're, they, have, they have substance in terms of subjective formation like i'm very explicit like when i write i recently wrote a meditation text called the stranger subject and i put it on the speculative non-buddhism blog and it, it's explicit about the kind of subject that it wants to create it's not saying that in doing this kind of meditation you become free of all subjectivity and become your true self like you know with, with no stains of, of ideology or subjectivity or anything like that it's rather saying all we can ever do is craft fictions or ideologies or forms of thought that that are productive in the world of the world a certain way. So a Buddha fiction is doing that sort of work with Buddhist materials. Mm. Like I don't know if you're like you, I'm sure you're familiar with Alain Badiou, that name, mm. right? Temporary yeah. thinker. He does something called um, I think he calls them hyper translations, where he takes Plato's dialogues. And he, he, he has them kind of say, you know, what he thinks should be said, you know, and mm. but but it produces a, a, a new interesting form. You know, it's not just bad you writing, but it, it's, it ties it to tradition, you know, to a long, long historical discourse. You know, when he puts it in Socrates's mouth and in the platonic dialogue form, Buddha fiction is something similar. It's saying, let's get on with the work of. So I, I, I divided the book up into. And I can say this about non-Buddhism, basically, it, it involves three aspects. Recognition, that is um, kind of figuring out what Buddha's identity really is about. And then negation, 
starting to apply some of these non-philosophical practices on it. And then the third one is, which is a kind of deconstructive practice. And the third one is redescription. And that's what Buddha fiction is. It's, it's saying, okay, we're done with this, this work of figuring out what Buddhism is really up to, as opposed to what it says it's up to. We're done with the, the deconstruction of that. Now let's get on to using its materials and doing interesting things with its materials. The assumption being it has really cool material. It has lots mm. of great ideas and concepts and practices and aesthetics and all, and all or, or other sorts of things going on. So let's do something with it rather mm. than just be, you know, follow, be, you know, run, be, like Lenin criticized the communist of his day because he said all they ever do is, is run behind Marxist theory, trying to see where it's going to go and where it takes them and thinking through things. We don't need to run, you know, like, like jog behind Buddhism to see where it's taking us. Let's rather take it somewhere and do something with it. So again, it's a negation of, it's a refusal to accept the authoritative power of Buddhism, but rather recognize it as a kind of inert, deaf and dumb cultural material that we, as agents can do something with. And Buddha mm. is a way of naming that, that genre. Mm. So there's a really powerful sentence um, that kind of I really enjoyed and I think sums that up really well uh, in the book, which says, well, which asks, who is the subject, what is the world that I desire to see woven from ex-Buddhist material? Um, and I think yeah. that really sums it up really well. Yeah. Um, I, I, I thought it was kind of incumbent on me to kind of say something um, like, you know, make, make a statement about like, what am I up to here? Um, mm. Because, because an important part of this work is, is that you want to, it doesn't end in the deconstruction or the critique of it, or the negation of it. it. It ends with the doing something with it. And, and part of the, the way it becomes different than creating new Buddhism is it's no longer sufficient. Um, it's, 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 it's no longer ideologically opaque. There's a transparency you know, in calling it a, a fiction about the creative, productive aspect of it. So I thought I should say what I'm interested in. I, I can't find it now, but um, I, I am interested in crafting a certain kind of subject in our world today, who has courage and creativity and is non-dominating and is interested in non-hierarchical forms of, of, of community and so forth. So mm. I, I don't mind being explicit about that and crafting materials out of Buddhism or whatever disciplines that, that serve that end. Mm. And you're not slipping it through the cracks. Um, I, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's not like, Trojan horse, you know, like I, that's what I said, like, you take any Buddhist, a paragraph from a Buddhist text, and it, it's, it's packed with hidden values and assumptions about how to be and what's right and what's wrong and how you should think. What you, and that's, that's a problem. So um, ideological transparency, I think, is, is a really crucial element of a truly liberatory form of thought and practice. Mm. Yeah, we can't we can't transcend the fact that we're actually going to kind of be giving off an ideology when we speak, but we can be open about what that ideology is. Exactly. And yeah. I, I think that those two are worlds apart, I believe, mm. in how they function in the world. 
Okay, so you mentioned in passing um, you're writing a book at the moment. Um, so what's that about? And you know, can you tell me about any other projects that you're doing at the moment, such as the is, is the Stranger Sutra? Yeah, uh, that 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 Stranger Sutra just came out of like people have been asking me forever, like, so how can we practice? Like, how can we still kind of take care of ourselves, even though we might be more tuned to, to the social now. That's a big turn that's occurred in Buddhism, you know, within your generation, really, that we can no longer think of Buddhism as this isolated practice to save individuals and lead them to enlightenment, but we have to start acting on the, 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 the social formations that produce the suffering that Buddhism is trying to get us to overcome. Um, so that, that's why I wrote that Strangers. I've been thinking about it for a long, long time. That came out of a, a long thinking of how to create a meditative practice that isn't um, attuned to sort of the neoliberal individualism that has overtaken, I think, so much, that naturally overtakes everything that comes into its scope, including Buddhism. Um, but that's, that's, that, yeah, that's kind of just an ongoing project. The, the book I'm working on believe it or not, is on anarchism. Um, someone asked me to write an anarchist's manifesto, and she, the publisher, she said, I want you to use that title, and um, please write this book. Keep it short, 130 pages. And so here's the thing about that book. You know, they always say, maybe you've heard this as a student, like you should always have an your audience in mind when you're writing. Hmm. You ever ever heard that that like writing tip? Yeah, yeah. The kind you know. of upaya. Yeah. Yeah. I, I say I've never in my life had any audience in mind. I just wrote <laughs> something like I felt maybe I was the audience. I want to figure this thing out. I'm gonna write out. With this new book, I actually have an audience in mind. And the audience is the kind a certain kind of liberal that's everywhere in my life. Like a certain kind of liberal person. Like I I, I won't go into what I mean by that. You can just use mm -hmm. it. The colloquial definition of what a liberal is, um, and I'm writing this book to try to get liberals to actually start entertaining more socialist, broadly conceived, and more specifically conceived anarchist ideas about how to live in the world, how to interact with one another, how to create you know, organizations, and 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 so forth. So that that's my current project. Um, having said that, I will say. So you you mentioned earlier that event at Harvard, um, Charles Hallisey. Mm, yeah. The person who organized that was Randy Rosenthal. He he was a graduate student there at the time, but he's also a, a journalist for the Los Angeles Times. He read this book, Critique of Western Buddhism, and he says it like his head was exploding. He just couldn't believe it. So he. <laughs> He had to get me up there to talk about it. But he recognized that it's run through with anarchist principles. Mm. And, yeah. and it is. And all, all of my work is. And I, I will just, I'll just say, like, I went to an, an anarchist high school, as crazy as that sounds. It was a high school that was founded on what it called democratic principles. But democratic is a code word for anarchists for anarchists there's a saying that anarchy is democracy taken seriously so um this high school i i learned some of the classical anarchist literature kropotkin bakunin and so forth and i but i also more importantly experienced 
deeply, viscerally, what it's like to live those principles. So it's been with me throughout all of my work. I'm just never explicit about it. So in this new new book, I'm I'm making a an argument for 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 why liberals should actually lean a lot farther left than they do. Wow, that sounds amazing. So are you are, are you gonna integrate some more kind of autobiographical um, or even biographical of someone else elements there? Because the the book critique of Western Buddhism is very strong on the theory and kind of um, executes that very well. Um, but I know, for instance, that uh, you well, like I said at the start, you were a professor um, of Buddhism or Buddhist studies or whatever it was at a university, and you had kind of achieved uh, success in that, and then you've gone through this process of kind of disillusionment um and it seems to me that that is uh was kind of simultaneous with your disillusionment with uh higher education um am i right in saying that that process was sim- was simultaneous yeah i think it's just you know an eyes opening to you know what am i doing here mm. what am i participating in in being a professor at a you know american corporate university tenured professor wow i get to do this whole my whole life like compromise myself like this you know no thanks uh, <laughs> yeah. i'd rather seek another course i i think it's all it's all it's all connected i think of you know realizing how certain structures and forms uh have i said this word a lot today but capture us uh, hold us uh, hostage it might be too much but but, but hold us in in their in their grip in a certain way the status quo does that um I've I've always been I've always been um, sensitive to that and uncomfortable with that kind of hold or capture and it, you know, you're you're what you're describing just more recent manifestations of it. Mm. I dropped out of high school, for example, because of that as a young man. Um, and I left home when I was 15 because of the similar kind of you know desire to escape forms of authority and. So it's been with me a lot. Um, I, I was very attracted to anarchists. The first time I heard about anarchist ideas, I was like, oh, you know, immediately had an affinity and a connection to them. So, mm. I, I, yeah, they just, you know, anti-authoritarianism, non-hierarchical ways of interaction, non-coercive, you know, non-dominating, which also has positive aspects, all of that, like, it allows other people's creativity and intelligence to manifest and, and so forth. That all comes naturally, I think, in a way to me. So it's probably inevitable that I would you know, give up my tenure who mm. has known me. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get very much the impression that a lot of your work kind of intersects and is interrelated. Um, so, Glenn, thank you so much for... Uh, coming on i really appreciate it um thank you tom is there anything that you want to say or um uh you want to close with that i cut you off uh from i just i just wish you luck with best of luck with your your project it's really cool and you ask really all bright intelligent questions creates really valuable exchanges good luck thank you so much glenn um so your um insight seminars events they are um pay what you can during uh the COVID nineteen 
uh, it's going to be like that. Pandemic. It's going to be like that forever. Like we're always going to be. Uh, if you can pay something, great. If you can't, just take what you can from us. Mm. Uh, so it's not just the pandemic stuff. It's 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 for going to be like that going forward. We, it's not a profit. We want to create more of a membership like ex- experience with people that you can be a member of this thing, and that means you can also offer seminars and sessions yourselves, or sit in on groups and even lead groups. Uh, and if you can chip in and pay something, that helps. But if you can't, just your being there helps. So it's an anti sort of profit uh, appro- approach to things. Mm. But yes, I appreciate you mentioning it. That's insight, by the way, is I-N-C-I-T-E, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, your speculative non-Buddhism blog is also active currently. Um, yeah, it so- is. Yeah, not as much as it was in the past, but we're, we're dropping stuff on there from time to time. And mm. anyone out there listening, you're, you're, you know, you're invited to, to um, submit a text, however long, etc. Um, yeah, great.